Welcome to Rex Factor! This time, Ethelred the Ready! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello. And uh, welcome to Rex Factor, where today we're not reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consort of England, but instead we are having a look back at uh, one of the monarchs we reviewed in Season 1, Ethelred the Unready. He's probably one of the more famous of the Anglo-Saxon kings, or perhaps infamous. He's not very well thought of. We think of... uh, Think of the Dane girl, lots of defeats to the Vikings. But we're joined today by uh, Brandon Bender, who's written a book about Ethelred the Unready, England's unlikely commander, the military career of Ethelred the Unready, which suggests that perhaps we might want to revisit our uh, judgment on Ethelred. Uh, so, Brandon, hello, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Whereabouts are you at the moment, Brandon? Oh, I'm actually in Kansas City, so right in the middle of the States. Oh, nice. This is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Ali is still very much in the zone of any time Skype works, we say this is the future. But actually now, maybe with this whole um, virus business, the future is here. It's now normal. Mm. Oh, dear, I dropped something. Sorry. <laughs> um, how did you come to write a book about Ethelred? What was it about him that uh, grabbed you and drew you in? You know, it was a very long process for me because when I started just for fun, informally, learning about the Anglo-Saxons and and their monarchs, um, probably about 10 years ago, I intentionally skipped over Ethelred the Unready (laughs) many times because I thought there is nothing that I want to learn about this guy. There is nothing impressive or redeeming about him whatsoever. I thought, what could I have to learn about a guy who's named the Unready? He got kicked out of England once. He would have gotten kicked out again if he hadn't died first. (laughs) And I thought I had it figured out before looking at it. And then finally, when I got around to studying the reign itself, and really once I got my hands on the primary sources, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, there are so many translations, it's very easy to get a hold of. And once I actually started digging into the sources like that, and non-English sources as well, I started to see a lot of things that made me really question my assumptions and in some ways i realized i had been completely wrong about ethelred and um, it's not just the primary sources as well i'm far from the first person to ever try to write a book and try and rehabilitate ethelred i think i might be the first one to write with more of a focus on the military aspect of it Mm. um but really i started to question my assumptions and that's a lot of what the book is about it's about assumptions and reputations and how the way you feel about something going into it can really change and alter the way you you interpret what you hear. Because with Ethelred, I found so many things that made me think he actually is not exceptional for his ineptness or for his greatness. He's actually a very ordinary Anglo-Saxon king militarily. Um, and that fascinated me. And I felt like I had to keep going and I had to keep digging um, to, to figure out what else I had missed. Mm. What are the sources that you've been using other than the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to inform the more sort of nuanced view of him? Yeah, well, that's a great question because the Chronicle is by far the main one. And so the book is still probably um, structured around the Chronicle far more than any other source. But sometimes you can even use sagas. That's actually becoming something that people 
scholars, academics, are actually more open to doing now, especially if you read some of the biographers of uh, Canute, who features very prominently in Ethelred's life as well. Um, people are starting to realize that you can recover things from the sagas. That doesn't mean you take them absolutely literally or that you treat them carelessly, um, but that they can be used as sources. Um, we also have a Norman source from William of Jumiesh that talks about um, an attack that Ethelred ordered on Normandy, which isn't actually mentioned in the Chronicle. So in something like that, you're forced to use a non-English mm. source if you want to even talk about it, because you might see a reference to this attack in a, a book or something. But if you go and look in the Chronicle, you're not going to find it. Well, that was, that was going to be my question, that if you look in a book, uh, not being specific as to which one, because uh, <laughs> it's not in the Beano, but if you look in... Uh, history books he's still always called the unready and he's still although people might have been trying to re rehabilitate him why has he still got this reputation what what drives that mm, yeah well what i found primarily um and it's not just one source but there's one big one that we need to talk about if we ever hope to understand what's going on with ethelred the unready and that's um william of malmesbury and he was not the only person writing about Ethelred at this time, but his account has become really the default. And a lot of Victorian historians also picked up on that because it, it very much focuses on the moral aspect and scandal. And a lot of that stuff is, is just myth, but it's survived in popular culture because it is so memorable. It is so interesting. And just um, for those of you not familiar with what William of Malmesbury thinks about Ethelred the Unready, He's the one that um, records the story of Ethelred uh, soiling the font at his own baptism, getting <laughs> scolded at his own coronation, being afraid of the dark, getting hit with candles. Um, let's see, what else? I mean, there's so much. Um, he's, he's a drunkard. He's sleepy. He can barely get out of bed. Um, and yet at the same time, he's also proud, arrogant. He's basically every last vice you can imagine. And that came from mainly... William of Malmesbury, um, there were other people writing at the time um, who did not share that view of Ethelred, but I think that that one probably survived precisely because it is so entertaining. And what was his problem with him then? What's the, what was the beef? Why did he pick on him? Yeah, you know, what I've usually heard, um, and I'm not an expert on William by, by uh, any measure, but what I normally hear is that William was very interested in what made a good and moral ruler, and it might have been that he was trying to explain Ethelred's downfall by connecting that to morality and saying, well, this is a person who's slothful and drunken and lazy and mean, and he doesn't respect, um, you know, the church, which is something that even earlier sources um, have, have some information about. Um, but so I've always heard it phrased in that sort of moral churchy connection. I mean, he's writing like a monk would write. Okay, it sounds like I wouldn't have liked him because he seems quite preachy, but if it's all about doing poos in fonts, I'm up for it. <laughs> and of course, we'll recall who the Archbishop was when the poo was put into Oh, the you're kidding. It was. It was. <laughs> oh, I love this, man. I'm all about Ethelred the Unready. <laughs> Brilliant. Bring it on. His first act in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so I thought before we get into um, looking at sort of Ethelred's life through, or, well, through his battliness um, through uh, new eyes, perhaps, just a reminder of what we said about him uh, nearly 10 years ago. He got a score of zero out of 20 for battliness. What? 
Um, and I was listening back, and actually, we did accept that he tried to do things, but it was just that everything he tried seemed to end up going very, very wrong. And ultimately, of course, as Brandon said, you know, he lost the throne once and seemed to be on the verge of losing it a second time. And uh, one thing I did note looking back in the episode was quite interestingly, this episode was the first time we ever got a message criticising you for not giving Egg of the Peaceable the Rex Factor. Really? Yeah, it was from Richard Holmes who said, Hood is just too bloodthirsty. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I can't deny it. (laughs) Anyway, so let's have a look at Ethelred's uh, battliness with uh, a new light and see whether we might uh, revise our opinion of him. Um, It starts quite early on. So um, in the book, the first thing you talk about is uh, an attack in Rochester in 986. Um, which is obviously actually against his own people, technically, rather than Vikings or uh, anybody else. But it's quite an early example of him as once he comes of age that he's quite keen to take action, to do stuff, to stamp his authority. Yeah, so this campaign, um, again, it's not really exceptional. It's it's mainly notable because it already places Ethelred right in line with his predecessors. So attacking your own people or ravaging your own land, harrying, pillaging your own land is actually a very ordinary activity for an Anglo-Saxon king. Um, just to use the previous few kings as an example to set up the context a little bit, um, Edgar the Peaceful did something like this. Edred did something like this. Edward the Martyr didn't, but he was only king for a few years. Um, and so it was actually a very normal activity, and it continued to be long past Ethelred's reign. Um, Hartha Canute, who was one of Canute the Great's sons, uh, who was king of England, he also led a campaign like this. Well, might be generous to call it a campaign if you're attacking civilians, but he also led a, an engagement like this um, against people who had killed his tax collectors. So this was actually a pretty routine thing for an Anglo-Saxon king to do when he felt like he'd been slighted or when he felt like he wasn't getting the respect he deserves. And the Chronicle, unfortunately, doesn't tell us why he did it. But a later source does. Um, A man named Solkard writes that Ethelred had actually granted land to one of his followers in Rochester's territory and that the bishop expelled this follower basically i don't know if he just didn't get the memo or if he didn't (laughs) respect what the king was doing giving away land that maybe he thought was his but um ethelred who probably would have been about 18 or 20 at this time uh did not take this well at all and attacked rochester and uh it appears that dunstan may have actually been involved in stopping the damage he actually paid a tribute to ethelred to stop pillaging, which is the exact opposite of what you might expect to associate with Ethelred <laughs> the Unready, right? Tribute. Mm. Um, but it's a pretty um, pretty ordinary attack in the wider scheme of things in Anglo-Saxon England. This sort of thing was really common. Um, but it is significant because Ethelred was later sorry for it. Um, he did talk about mm. doing penance for this, and his charters in the 990s talk about you know his period of ill-advised youth and i think this was definitely one of those events so that would be ammunition for mr malmesbury because he was attacking church stuff absolutely yeah um it's just one more sign that points toward ethelred as a wicked king and maybe just maybe in william's mind this has something to do with why ethelred is ultimately unsuccessful even though 
at this time, this was a very normal activity. Edgar had done it, Edred had done it, um, and later even Knut's dynasty would do it as well. Hmm. So it's in the 990s and when the Vikings uh, arrive on the scene that the sort of traditional narrative of Ethelred takes hold and it really begins with uh, something that's quite close to our hearts as uh, people who've both lived in uh, Molden in our youth, the Battle of Molden in 991. It's where we have, um, it's actually quite a, a good loss in a weird way for the Saxons. They put up quite a good fight but nevertheless they are defeated by a Viking army and it's the first major payment uh, of the Danegeld. And I guess the Danegeld is one of the big controversies for Ethelred that sort of sullied his opinion. I think Ali had the great quote of saying that it's like paying wasps with jam to make them go away. And you think, <laughs> well, they're just going to keep coming back for more jam. Um, so wh- what do you think about that and the Danegeld? Was it a stupid tactic that was never going to work or was it actually quite a legitimate thing to be doing? Yeah, again, the thing that really surprised me when I got into the primary sources was that Danegeld or tribute or whatever you want to call it was again just very ordinary. It was not surprising at all. And and um, people like Alfred the Great had used it. People like William the Conqueror used it. Um, it was used all the time on the continent. Frankish rulers were paying tribute all the time to get Vikings to go away. Um, and the main reason for this was that it was used to buy time. That seems to be the main strategy. And with Ethelred in particular, tributes almost always follow military defeats. They are almost never just offered up the moment someone arrives on the scene. And there had been Viking raids very different in character before Malden. Um, Throughout the 980s, the Chronicle references attacks on the southern and western coasts of the British Isles. And um, most scholars think that these fleets, these earlier fleets came from more like the Irish Sea area, um, not from Scandinavia proper. Um, but by the time Malden rolls around, yes, it's clear that something has changed and the armies are larger, the damage is more extensive. The Chronicle grows so much more frustrated and so much more exasperated with what's going on. Um, and so it is true that Malden is the first example of Ethelred paying the Danegeld, paying the tribute. But the tactic itself, again, was just very ordinary, both before and after Ethelred's time. Now, I think you'd have a hard time finding anyone who maybe used it as much as Ethelred did. But you have to also remember that Ethelred lived a very long time for someone in his lineage. Most of his kings, most of the kings in his dynasty were dead by 35. Um, Ethelred probably lived about 50 and reigned for 38 years. So it is it is definitely true that he made more extensive use of tribute than perhaps anyone uh, perhaps anyone that I can think of off the top of my head. But the tactic itself was not necessarily cowardly, especially if you used it to take proactive measures in the meantime. So is was the problem then that it was the Danegeld and as well as a loss, rather than just paying the Danegeld, which others had done? The Danegeld on the back of a big battle defeat, it sort of gets m- remembered more than if Alfred the Great just said, tell you what, bung them 50 quid and they'll go away till next year. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder how much of it has to do with the Danegeld itself and how much has to do with what we think of Ethelred before we've even talked about it. Just the nickname Unready, which isn't even accurate. It means uh, it means ill-advised. It's a pun. It was originally Anglo in Anglo-Saxon. It was Ethelred Unred, which meant noble counsel, no counsel. Um, and so, so much of it, I think, is stacked against Ethelred before we even explore issues like tribute or before we even talk about battliness because 
Ethelred just carries around this weight on his shoulders of being one of, if not the worst English kings ever. And so um, it's the sort of tactic where if Ethelred did something and it didn't work, it's very easy to confirm that and say, yes, of course it didn't work. If Alfred had used tribute and it did work, we go, oh, what a genius. Or even if it doesn't work, we go, well, he's still Alfred. So, so much of it has to do with assumptions and reputations. Um, I guess the key question then, in terms of assessing that as a tactic for him, is what did he do with the time that he'd bought after Molden? With that, uh, the money paid to the Vikings, what does he then do? Yeah, so his first action, once the Vikings are paid off, is to assemble a fleet. And so here we see Ethelred doing, again, a very rational, ordinary activity for a king who's just paid tribute. He's going to bulk up the defenses, he's going to gather all the ships that are of any use, and... Um, he actually devises a plan to, the Chronicle says, entrap the host somewhere out to sea. Uh, but of course, it goes wrong because, true to his nickname, Unred, Ethelred does not have the support of the political structure surrounding him. His court is rife with um, treachery and rumor, and and this is a problem all throughout the reign. This is not something that just happens after Malden. Um, and so Ethelred really suffers from that because other kings maybe they had a little bit more support around them than someone like Ethelred did, um, even though they they took rational measures as well. Um, so it's not really so much Ethelred's practices that are wrong. It's the execution that's wrong because he just doesn't have the support of his own eldermen. And you have to remember that the reign of Edgar the Peaceful had been such a huge exception in the history of Anglo-Saxon England, it was very unusual to have a 15-year period with no raids, no direct military confrontation. Um, so I think a lot of that goes into understanding what happens with Ethelred throughout the reign. Now, the Viking leader at Maldon is a chap called Olaf Tryggvason, and he comes back again a few years later and attacks London. Now, Ethelred then hits upon the tactic of persuading Olaf to be baptised and then promise not to invade England ever again. Now, Ali always despairs at the idea of this rather pious strategy ever actually working, but does it? In this case, amazingly, it works for Ethelred. Um, and he's again following a very established practice. I mean, we've talked about um, how past kings did this. Alfred did it um, with Guthrum, the Viking leader. Um, and so basically, the Londoners put up this great defense. Olaf goes away and starts pillaging the countryside. And finally, Ethelred says, okay, okay, stop. I'll pay you. You're, you're going to be my, um, you know, you're, you're going to be like my godchild. Ethelred stands sponsor for him at his Christian confirmation, and Olaf actually never comes back with ill intent ever again, um, and actually spends the next few years basically crusading his way through Scandinavia, tying up, we think, other Viking bands. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there were no more raids on England at this time, because there were a few years later. But with Olaf, you know, the, the man who won the Battle of Malden, this amazing and uh, very urgent threat to the kingdom is neutralized. Um, basically forever because he never comes back and I think he dies around the year 1000 or 1002, something like that. Um, and I've also heard that, you know, maybe he was tying up people like Swain Forkbeard who becomes very prominent after Olaf Tryggvason's death. So it's quite an interesting what if, if because um, Sven and Olaf end up at war and, you know, that that's the end of Olaf. If Olaf had defeated Sven Forkbeard, that could have been a very, very different history for England if the leading 
Viking is Christian and friendly towards England, that would have been exact. That would have been perfect for Ethelred. His plan would have perhaps seen him through. He wouldn't have had to worry about it again. I know, and it's really tempting to to think about. Um, and so for Ethelred, though, it still I think can be classed as a success because he did neutralize his greatest enemy at the time. Um, but as I said, it didn't tie up all the Viking raids because for sure we know that there was a. I think one fleet that traveled along the southern coast a few years after this. Um, but the Chronicle kind of implies that this was not as serious as, as Malden. There are no great battles fought. Um, a little bit later, Ethelred doesn't pay a tribute. Some of these guys just go away after a while. So it's really sort of unclear. The Chronicle is kind of ambiguous about what goes on at this time. Um, but I still think that the the agreement with Olaf has to be called a success. And it is one of the few times when Ethelred comes up with this plan that seems outlandish to us but for him he was looking back at what his predecessors had done and saying well what can i do that maybe someone like alfred did um and he does definitely imitate and we'll see this as we move on he does imitate the things that his predecessors had done which to him you know not having the benefit of the hindsight that we do must have seemed perfectly rational well so it wasn't so much paying wasps with jam which if you write another book, you're welcome to use. <laughs> um, it was uh, seeing the wasps and lobbing a, 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 a what you call what does jam come in, Graham? Over here, jar, jar, jar of jam uh, over the sea back home. So they all buzz off, pardon the pun, to <laughs> back home and eat all the delicious jam. I might be taking this too far, <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that was definitely a lot closer to what Ethelred would have intended. It was more of a, a divide your enemies kind of tactic as well. Um, of course, the immediate priority would have been to just get Olaf out. But mm. if he can use that energy, especially that Christian zeal to convert his neighbors or just use that as an excuse to wage war on somebody, that was a win for Ethelred. Um, quick question. Why was he quite so un counseled or whatever it was you know why 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 i didn't his name but was because he didn't have the guidance but why was that because all the oh hang on was it the previous generation had all died off yeah, yeah that's, that's, that a, is that's a, part of it for sure and there's a judgment question about him isn't there in terms of actually you know should he be criticized for the fact that he doesn't necessarily pick the best people hmm yeah, and that is one criticism of Ethelred that is probably, in my mind, true, that he does do much better when he has this old guard around him, when he has men like Bishop Ethelwald around him and Dunstan, oh. or when his mother is back at court, because he, he sends his mother off to go away yeah. for a while, and then when he recalls her back to court, he kind of goes through these motions of penance saying, you know, I'm sorry, I stole a lot of land, I was a bad person, um, I'm ready to be good now. Um, and part of that might have been the environment that Ethelred grew up in and the world he grew up in, because in Edgar's reign, with all the monastic reform and everything that went with it, so much of the kingdom's fortunes were perceived to be connected to the king's own morality. So if you have a wicked king, you can expect bad things to happen to your people. And so Ethelred does seem to do better when he has these sort of more stable figures especially the old guard around him and then later in the reign we'll see that he picks some very unsavory characters to hang around um have we covered those unsavory characters g-man uh the big one is uh edric striona 
Oh yeah, were. okay. And then this is all the build up to um, ten sixty six and all that. Uh, well, ultimately, yeah. Okay. So by the end of the nine nineties, without the hindsight of what's going to happen, um, I think you were saying in the book how actually he's probably more thinking about you know law codes and the arts and stuff like that. At this point, England isn't in fear of imminent collapse to the Vikings. Right. It's not at all, especially when you look closely past the Chronicles, more dramatic wording, because there are parts where it says, you know, nothing went right. There were delays. It wasted money. It stressed out the people. Um, But when you look at the areas directly affected, you can't help but wonder if the rest of the kingdom even really cared. I mean, would somebody far in the north really care that um, the Vikings are in the south, especially if they're more hit and run pillaging raids? They're not these massive armies yet that are bent on conquest conquest is not um probably on anybody's mind at this point Mm. despite what some later legends say nobody was trying to actively conquer england at this point this was regular early middle-aged early middle ages activity where if you have an opponent that you think you can march in and steal some stuff from or maybe extract some tribute from that's what you're going to do and the english do it um to the welsh a lot during this period some people have almost called it a ritual sort of warfare um and ethelred will start doing his own shortly after the 990s but that's i would say that's definitely correct that in the 990s there is no danger of imminent collapse even though things must be very terrible for the people actually in the areas directly affected but it's certainly not ethelred's priority and in the late 990s we actually see vikings go vikings go away without paying any more tribute and then which is i think this is perhaps going to be the most surprising thing for a lot of people the next few years from 1000 we see ethelred doing um what ali wanted edgar to do well not going off to in to uh, <laughs> conquer viking lands but we see ethelred leading military campaigns outside of his own kingdom well that must be a first for a saxon is it athelstan yeah, in scotland so. i suppose yeah, Athelstan is, is a big one. He went all the way up through Scotland. Um, Edmund had done, Edmund I, not Edmund Ironside, had done something similar where he went up to Strathclyde and Cumbria. Um, but Ethelred is very much, again, following what his predecessors have done. When you have the ability to do it, and I don't want to go so far as to say it's a ritual for Anglo-Saxon kings, but it is something they do over and over again. Um, Edred had done it a lot as well. You go north and you intimidate your neighbors. And this is where we start to see Ethelred doing some of those things. But not overseas. Well, sort of. It depends on depends on uh, how literally you want to say overseas for the northern campaigns. And then we have another one in Normandy that I think would definitely count um, where he crosses the channel. So right. in the year 1000, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that the Vikings are gone. Um, they've gone off to Normandy. That's what the Chronicle says. And then it says that Ethelred used this opportunity to lead a land force north into Strathclyde. And the Chronicle says he ravaged very nearly the whole of it. Um, And then at the same time, his fleet was supposed to meet him there, but they got blown off course or for whatever reason, they weren't able to meet him. So his fleet ends up going to the Isle of Man. And the Chronicle says that they harry the Isle of Man. And so Ethelred originally, it sounds like, wanted these, these two forces to join up and lead some sort of great, I don't know if it would have just been more 
harrying and pillaging, or if it would have been something greater. The Chronicle simply doesn't tell us. But Ethelred, amazingly, is at the head of an army going north and attacking the exact same area that someone like Edmund I did, who has a much better reputation. He doesn't go as far as Ethelstan does. But a lot of scholars of the reign, such as one expert named Ian Howard, actually directly compares this to Ethelstan's wars of expansion. And so Ethelred has not given up um, Edgar's claim to be sort of the overlord of the island. He wants to still pursue that policy when he can. Oh, take that, Isle of Man. Yeah. (laughs) That definitely counts. And that's such, like we were just saying there about the 990s and how England's not actually you know, on the verge of collapse and conquest. And that couldn't be more perfectly illustrated by the fact that he then goes off and potentially, yeah. if not a campaign of conquest, but, you know, he's raiding into Scotland and to the Isle of Man. That's completely the opposite of what you associate with Ethelred the Unready. Yeah. yeah, it really is. And I think this is where it's important to remember, too, that a lot of those early raids came from this area. So sometimes it's tempting to wonder, well, why didn't, the English attack back. I mean, it's a game that two can play. If you're being raided or pillaged, why not pillage back? And in the year 1000, Ethelred pillages back. That's not well known, that after a Viking raid, we raid back. There's a victim culture we've got. Ali's taking the Isle of Man as an overseas campaign, but as um, you're just saying, he's got a better one than that because he, he literally goes over the channel to Normandy. Okay, well, this is bona fide. Yeah, so this, I, it, it's a little bit disappointing because it's cool that Ethelred actually goes overseas and attacks somebody across the channel. Unfortunately, it goes really <laughs> badly for Ethelred. And we actually know this from a Norman source. Um, William of Jumiege writes about this. And um, I think the really interesting thing about this campaign, because it's, it's full of, the, the account is full of dramatic details and um, you know conversations between characters, including Ethelred. The really notable thing is that the Chronicle places the Vikings in Normandy at precisely this time. So again, we kind of have Ethelred doing this tit-for-tat thing where he says, if you're going to attack me or you're going to shelter my enemies or you're going to serve as a place to recruit soldiers from or sell your loot here, I'm going to come get you. But unfortunately for Ethelred, it just doesn't work because a local leader named either Neil or Nigel, depending on the translation you look at, um, actually repels Ethelred with what is presented as basically a peasant levy against Ethelred's you know, professional soldiers. And it all is very embarrassing for Ethelred. But just the fact that a Norman source can even portray this mm-hmm. and the, it's, it's still Ethelred doing this, it's very surprising. So who's the enemy that he's harboring? This other fellow's harboring? Um, so the, the main thinking with this campaign is that Ethelred is trying to, and the, the source actually says this, is trying to capture Duke Richard II of Normandy because he keeps allowing the Vikings to take port. Oh, yeah. We did that, right, Graham? Mm, with Emma. Okay, yeah. Because I suppose it's, um, it, it does sound a very embarrassing effort when uh, you read that a chap called Nigel leads an army of peasants and washerwomen and Ethelred sent packing. <laughs> that does sound a little bit more like what you'd expect from an Ethelred campaign. Um, but he does get a uh, a bride out of the campaign, perhaps, with uh, Emma of Normandy. Does he steal her? <laughs> <laughs> no? No. 
No, he doesn't steal her. But I think that it really shows that things, relations were very, very poor between England and Normandy at this time because, and this is going back much earlier, in 991, the same year Malden was fought, um, we actually have record of a truce between Richard I, the current Duke's father, um, and Ethelred, where Richard had to agree to stop, you know, helping out Ethelred's enemies so much. So we already know there are tensions between England and Normandy at this time. And then we have this reference in the Chronicle to the Vikings going over to Normandy and selling their stuff. Um, And then we have this Norman account saying Ethelred actually led some sort of raid or campaign trying to capture the Duke himself, and it fails. And then the marriage comes about where they're finally, I think, saying, okay, that's enough. Let's stop this. Um, but to me, this is a sign that relations between these these two territories are really poor. Mm. Or And equal, at least. It's not like he's the weak one. Emma going over and becoming the anointed queen of England is definitely a big win for Normandy in terms of prestige, right? So now mm. someone from their territory, from their duchy, is an anointed queen of a major European country, very wealthy country, Um and it also proved, I think, that Ethelred was not totally undesirable by this point either in terms of a yeah. dynastic match. And he's not really suffering too much in terms of Viking raids in this time. I think that you said there were some more, um, but there's quite unusually, there's quite good local resistance in this period, it seems. There definitely is some good resistance, and it doesn't always end up in a what the Chronicle would call a victory, but it does at least sometimes seem to slow down the Vikings. Um, and at other times... It's really bizarre because it looks like Ethelred has hired mercenaries, Viking mercenaries, to help defend England, and some of these people actually turn against uh, turn against Ethelred once more Vikings show up. In particular, a, ma- a man named Palig um, is basically uh, signed into service to to be Ethelred's mercenary, and then as soon as the first hint of trouble shows up, and maybe some of his old buddies come by, and they're ransacking everything. Um, Palig says, you know what, I think I'm going to join you guys. Um, too bad that Ethelred gave me all this money, but, uh, you know, I think we can take some more. Um, so it doesn't always go well. And at this point, the Chronicle really does start to get dramatic. Um, but you're right that there's a lot of good local resistance at this, at this period in the early 1000s. And Ethelred has just gone on all his raids around the, the Irish Sea, and he's gone over to Normandy. Um, he's got a new bride. So things are not catastrophic at this point yet. And they will be at, at a later point. But right now, they're not. And also, does this all imply that he had a navy? Yeah, Ethelred does have... I don't know if he'd want to call it a navy or a fleet. Some people get really picky. But yeah, he does have a navy. Um, he oh, he assembled some ships that I would imagine would have belonged to Edgar in 992 after the Battle of Malden. And later he'll he'll uh, construct another fleet but at this time he probably still has many of those ships yes oh gee man come on <laughs> Ali does why love didn't we navy. mention the navy got boats yeah i love a boat <laughs> pooed in dunstan's font <laughs> exactly what's not to like <laughs> now also around this time we have perhaps the most notorious uh, incident of ethelred's reign in 1002 with the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, where he orders the slaughter of all the Danes in England. Um, this is often seen as the signs of a desperate and failing king and incites Sven Forkbeard to invade to avenge the death of his sister. Is this a mistake by Ethelred, or is it actually just another 
piece of evidence of him being proactive and targeting his enemies? Now, that's a great question. I would be tempted to say it's a little bit of both. I think that Ethelred throughout his reign proved that he could be completely paranoid. Um, he's always trying to purge people from court. Um, and it's amazing that no one ever got him. I mean, that Ethelred managed to get everyone before they got him is <laughs> quite incredible. Um, so I think he might have had a little bit of that paranoid streak to him. Um, but it also fits in well with this, yeah, this burst of energy, this sort of fit he goes through at, at the year 1000 to about 1002, where he's just constantly on the move. He's not in bed. He's not sitting around all day um, in a drunken stupor. He's not um, cowering in the dark or anything like, you know, we might kind of expect the later legends to say um, he's anything but paralyzed. And I think that's the phrase I use in my book, that for better or for worse, Ethelred is not paralyzed. <laughs> So he also had some quite a good sort of defensive spy network or something that there were people trying to kill him and he even he did a Castro on them all. Yeah. And so part of it, I've heard some scholars say that they think that this really was um, maybe targeted more at mercenaries than anybody, especially because the Chronicle places the betrayal of Palig right before this. Um, I'm not entirely convinced of that. The Chronicle says that Ethelred demanded the deaths of all Danes in England. Ethelred himself refers to it in a later charter. Um, I don't see any reason to think that it would have been restricted to purely mercenaries or just to disloyal soldiers or anything like that. Um, but I think they would have fallen under that order by default, though. Mm. So at this point, um, Ethelred, you know, as you said, it's not um, lots of massive victories and huge successes, but equally it's not a terrible record at this point but it feels like after this is when things do seem to start going wrong is ethelred in a good place and then messes it up or you know do other things get on top of him what what goes wrong for ethelred mm. yeah so ethelred up to this point the reign has been somewhat stable especially in the 990s he starts to get kind of chaotic in the in the 1000s but it's mostly aggressive activity and for whatever reason, Ethelred kind of stops going on the move at this point for a few years. Swain Forkbeard shows up um, shortly after St. Bryce's Day, and he had been present in England on raids before. So I don't know that St. Bryce's Day necessarily would have caused him to, uh, you know, up the ante a bit. But um, yeah, so Swain shows up. Um, Edric is a huge problem, only in hindsight, though, because at the time, Ethelred thought he had somebody who would do anything that he wanted. So if Ethelred wanted someone gone, like this elderman named Elfhelm that he wants out of the picture, Edric is the man to do it. Edric becomes one of the leading nobles in England at this time. He is Ethelred's right-hand man. He eventually marries one of Ethelred's daughters. Um, so the link between them is very, very close. And this is where we start getting into the sort of like um, monarch and evil advisor tropes right where you've got this guy behind the throne pulling the strings i don't think that's necessarily going on because edric would have had his own things to do in mercia where he was elderman um so he probably wasn't with ethelred all the time but it becomes a very common recurring theme from here on out that when something goes wrong edric is involved mm. and so that's part of what's going wrong but another reason and probably the bigger reason is more just bad luck on Ethelred's part because the raids become, well, they're not raids anymore. They become full-scale invasions. And when Thorkel the Tall um, shows up at the end of this decade, that for me is the major turning point of this reign where 
Um, so far, he's been able. Ethelred has been able to deal with these smaller raids. He's been able to attack Normandy when they're bothering him. He can attack the Isle of Man when they're bothering him. But when it comes to dealing with somebody that is leading a massive army from Scandinavia proper, it's not easy to get back at him. Um, Ethelred has to figure out what he's going to do, and he does eventually find a way to neutralize Thorkel the Tall. But I would say that when Thorkel begins his campaigns in 1009, this is this is when things really start to get bad. And you say, is it just bad luck that this happens? Because uh, from what we've been talking about, it sounds like Ethelred's response thus far has been fairly robust. It's certainly not the record of someone that people oversee to say, oh, you know, you've got to get to England. It's slim, easy pickings. There's absolutely nothing there. It seems like he's been fairly robust in response. So is it just that it happens that this is a period when these great commanders and their great armies decide to really go on the offensive? Or is there anything that Ethelred has done or not done that encourages them well and this is where we do get back to the discussion of tribute and i think that this might be one of the main uh, the main reasons why people like thorkel the tall are eager to get to england with bigger armies and with bigger coalitions because um especially earlier it's pretty unusual for these major viking bands to join up with each other under one main chief or one king um and I can't help but wonder if something about these escalating tribute payments throughout the 990s, and there were a few in the 1000s as well, um, if that didn't do something to provoke it, even though Ethelred always used that to build a fleet or to attack his other neighbors who were bothering him, or simply just to put an end to it, because the Chronicle, actually at one point, this is really remarkable, it criticizes not that Ethelred paid the tribute, I think this is in 1010, the era we're talking about. It criticizes the fact that he doesn't pay it soon enough. His people are suffering. They're tired. They've, they've been beaten in battle. The local defenses have failed. The eldermen have failed. And everyone's wondering, when is Ethelred going to put a stop to it? And finally, he does and pays a massive tribute. Um, but it's really unique that even at the time, the, the criticism isn't so much that Ethelred's paying the tribute, but that he's waiting too long. And I wonder if that doesn't hint that Ethelred himself knew that this wasn't a policy that he wanted to pursue, but maybe it was something he felt a little bit forced into after a while. But on some level, it must also reflect the abilities, the leadership abilities of people like Canute the Great, Swain, uh, Thorkel, that they are able to actually keep these huge armies together because the Vikings, just like the Anglo-Saxons, uh, they had their factions. They didn't always get along with each other. So... Um, I think it might be all of those things combined, plus just the fact that um, Ethelred hasn't been on the move as much in this era. So, um, and the local defenses, after years of constant attack, it just doesn't seem like it's working as well anymore. He's very unlucky. And another thing in this period, um, which I do remember from the first episode, and I do feel a bit sorry for him, he's it's sort of 1008, 1009 he builds this really big fleet because you mentioned one that he did before after Molden, but he really goes all out this time and it's what you know it's what you'd want a king to do it's a huge fleet yeah it should be really successful but it's not yeah so ethelred in this in the lead up to this has again done everything right if you're going to pay the tribute your people are upset you've got to get the vikings out of england he does it or at least he stops the damage for some time by paying this massive tribute. He immediately starts work on this huge fleet that the Chronicle says was greater than the fleets of that were seen in any days of any king. Um, and so this all should go well. He's got time to do it because, you know, he's paid the Dane Guild. And um, 
a year later, the fleet is ready. Ethelred himself is there. He's ready to see it off um, and, you know, put it into action. And everything falls apart because of a dispute within his court. Um, someone accuses a local lord or a minor lord named Wolfnoth of treachery. And Wolfnoth decides to take off with some of Ethelred's ships. And so Ethelred, being a very energetic and very vindictive king, sends a large chunk of the rest of the fleet off after Wolfnoth. And a storm hits. And that entire fleet that was in pursuit of Wolfnoth and those ships that were stolen, it's all gone. Oh, that's like risk. <laughs> well, you, you, you've got such a superior force, but it's just bad luck. You roll two ones. Yeah, two sixes. But that, I... Ah... I was thinking of like um, I was imagining if this was a computer game like you so said Ali always likes to reference uh, Red Alert that sort of oh, thing yeah. if you were playing as Ethelred and you were trying all these things that he was doing you'd be getting so frustrated and at this point with this fleet and you've got you finally you've put in all your resources you built a huge fleet and you think right finally this is going to do the job I've got so many I'm guaranteed success. Even with bad luck, I can't not win. And then you see them get wiped out in one, one storm. That's yeah, the point exactly. at which you turn the computer off, throw the game away, and never play it again. <laughs> yeah. And amongst then the uh, other online players, you get the nickname The Unready. <laughs> yeah. And that's it for the rest of eternity. Is it too much of a pattern to be coincidence that he keeps being incredibly unlucky or is he just one of those people that he he tries all the right things and it just, you know, it just didn't happen for him? So with Ethelred, if you study him long enough and closely enough, you <laughs> cannot help but notice that so many of his problems are self-inflicted. St. Bryce's Day, I mean, it's debatable whether that provoked more attacks or not, but if it did... Again, there's a self-inflicted one. Um, raising up Edric from nothing to basically wipe out your enemies for you. That's some terrible uh, that's that's some terrible luck, but it's also showing that you're a pretty poor judge of character. Um, and Ethelred really does alienate a lot of the people who should be supporting him through his actions like this, whether you're blinding um, the sons of Elfhelm or whether you are blinding someone in 992 after failed resistance against the Vikings or whether you're um, whether you're taking the lands and the lives away of some of your nobles like Sigfirth and Morkar we'll talk about them in 1015 and that provokes your own son to rise against you because he says hey you can't do that you agreed to be better than this so so many of these things are self-inflicted and it's sort of ironic because the longer I researched Ethelred the more I realized that his problem wasn't so much being inactive, it might have been being too active, that he's <laughs> hypervigilant, that he's always looking for something to do. And I don't want to say he's this sort of restless person, but he's very vindictive. And if he's suspicious of you and and he can find a way to get Edric to do something for him, mm -hmm. your days are numbered. It's so strange, isn't it, that he would go down in history as being... Um, someone who just didn't do anything, didn't do enough, wasn't prepared, obviously, the mistranslation. And actually, looking at him, the one thing he shouldn't really be accused of is not doing enough. Hmm. A pushover. 
Yeah, well, and Edric is at the center of something else at precisely this time right after the fleet. Ethelred decides that he is going to pursue Thorkel and his Vikings on land. The fleet has failed. Some of it is still around, so the fleet isn't completely destroyed. But he sends the remainder back to London and says, okay, I'm going to pursue them uh, with land forces then. And Ethelred, the Chronicle says, actually found Thorkel and cornered him along the shore. So Ethelred is basically surrounding Thorkel and Thorkel's Viking host, right? And who who's there, of course? Edric. And the Chronicle specifically says that Edric persuaded the king that it was not a good idea to attack. And a later version of the Chronicle actually says that, uh, I believe this one's from John of Worcester, actually says that Ethelred had resolved to conquer or die, but as usual, Edric prevented it. And basically, both sides decide they're not going to fight each other, so Thorkel backs off, does not engage Ethelred, and Ethelred just lets him go. That is that's pretty poor. <laughs> that's, yeah, okay, well, he's undone all that good work. There must have been some sort of reason for it. I don't think that Edric is thinking, okay, in exactly seven years from now, Knut the Great is going to come in and I'm going to join forces with him and I'm going to betray Edmund Ironside. No, he must have he must have seen something that he didn't like and that Ethelred was forced to agree with. Um, and we can debate how wise that is, but unfortunately the Chronicle just doesn't give us any details. We don't know exactly where this was. We don't know what the terrain was like. We don't know the size of the armies. So we're basically just left with this note that says, Hey, Ethelred trapped them. He wants to he wants to fight, and Edric says no. And the king says, Okay, you're right, we probably shouldn't. Unready indeed. But to be fair, after a couple of years of ravaging the country at will, Ethelred does then get Thorkel to switch sides. He does. So he kind of has another great moment with a prominent Viking leader, just like he did with Olaf Tryggvason back in nine nine four. Ethelred, and one one scholar of Ethelred's reign, Richard Abels, has a great quote about this. Uh, he says, I'm going to try to quote this as, as best I can. <laughs> he says that somehow Ethelred persuaded Thorkel that it was more valuable to eat at the king's table than to steal food from it. And the oh, Chronicle says awesome. that Thorkel crossed over and entered Ethelred's service. After years of, of pillaging and receiving tribute, Thorkel switches sides. But this does come after... Uh, the death of Archbishop Alfie. I don't know if you remember Alfie, but he was the guy who was pelted to death with animal bones. What? Yeah, the Vikings had taken him hostage, this Archbishop. Of Canterbury, wasn't it, Alfie, was he? Yeah, yeah, and um, they wanted to ransom him. And Archbishop Alfie said no, and they killed him. And some people have suggested that these were Thorkel's men that killed him. Some people, well, a lot of people, a lot of scholars have suggested that Thorkel kind of knew that he had lost control of his huge Viking coalition. And so some people have suggested maybe Thorkel is saying, okay, it's time for me to find something else to do. We've been paid the tribute. The archbishop is dead. We didn't want that. We wanted to ransom him. And he, for whatever reason, decides to enter Ethelred's service. The Chronicle says that he entered Ethelred's service on the condition that his men were clothed and fed. Um, I suspect there must have been much more to the agreement than that. I'm sure there was some sort of monetary arrangement hmm. as well but Thorkel actually switches sides and amazingly Ethelred has not only neutralized the greatest threat to his kingdom at this moment but he has made him his personal defender he's very pragmatic isn't he Ethelred he's not too proud to keep trying things you know we had Olaf was raiding so he pays him and gets him on side Thorkel is raiding he gets him on side as well he's, he's always trying to adapt to the circumstances 
Yeah, he really is a great survivor, if nothing else. Amazingly, through it all, through nearly four decades of Viking attacks, some much more severe than others, just always manages to come through. And even at the lowest point of his reign, which is coming up here pretty soon, if we're going in chronological order, Hmm. again, he just finds a way to come back after that. So it's 1012 when Thorkel switches sides, um, which might have seemed like a you know, potentially a game changer for Ethelred, but actually it's the following year when he hits something of a nadir with the invasion of Sven Forkbeard. And this is perhaps one of the things which I guess we see a lot of Ethelred's reign probably through the lens of just what happened in 1013, because it seems like, particularly now, having you know talked about all of this and how he's doing so much, he's got so many ideas, he's turned Thorkel, he's the Navy, all this sort of stuff... In 1013, it seems like England just collapses without any resistance at all. So how is it that having got Thorkel on side, having had so much to do over the last 20 years, that Sven Forkbeard seems to take the throne so easily? Right. And this is where we get back to the support of the political structure surrounding Ethelred, namely that he doesn't have any support. (laughs) And we already talked about how a lot of that might be Ethelred's own doing. He has alienated a lot of these powerful families um, and he's used men like Edric to do it. And so the amazing thing about Swain's invasion and really the, the genius of his invasion is that he does the opposite of what a lot of people, a lot of Vikings have done before. You know, a lot of those early attacks were, you know, in the Southwest or on the Southern coast. Um, or maybe even if you wanted to look good, you could march through Wessex and Hmm. you know kind of humiliate the king in his own territory swain does not do that he starts in the north where he knows i'm guessing that resistance will be very weak because people are already fed up with ethelred because he's behaving like a tyrant he assassinates people without trial he um, overthrows people blinds their children and another reason why he might start in the north is because thorkel the chronicle says is with ethelred in london so of Hmm. course he doesn't want to go there. And avoidance is a huge part of the military, the, the military engagements of both the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings at this time. Um, you know, we love to see the pitched battles where it's like Braveheart, you know, they both line up and they scream at each other and they offer terms and then they mm. scream at each other again. And then they both come crashing in at the same time. The Vikings really like to avoid when possible. Anyone going on a, a raid or even with conquest, you'd probably be best advised to avoid massive armies uh, opposing armies at all costs and so i think that that swain definitely knows he doesn't want to start in the south ethelred's there thorkel is there and really the only resistance true to what the chronicle says that he meets during his whirlwind campaign where he conquers england is twice at london so the first siege of london happens where swain shows up And the Chronicle, and this is, again, a really interesting, rare glimpse into what might have actually happened because the Chronicle is so terse most of the time. Um, But it says that London resisted fiercely because Ethelred and Thorkel were inside. And I think that's really significant. So where the king is and where his mercenaries are, that is something that, that Swain knows he can't take right away. And Swain actually leaves. So Ethelred and Thorkel beat him back. Um, And only when Thorkel comes back a second time, a little bit later, in 1013, do the Londoners finally admit, okay, he's got control of the rest of the country. Everyone by this point has acknowledged Swain Forkbeard as full king of England. And only then 
does Ethelred leave? And Richard Abel's one of those scholars I mentioned earlier, actually talks about 1013 in a way that I had missed. But he says that um, 1013 reflects very well on King Ethelred from a personal courage standpoint, where if there was a time to flee the country, it was right then and there. Um, but instead, he stays in London. I mean, it's hopeless at this point. He beats back Swain once with the help of Thorkel. Um, and then when Swain comes back again, he still doesn't leave until the city gives up. And then the Chronicle says that Ethelred is hanging out on the ships in the Thames. <laughs> I mean, the most that must be the worst possible place for him to be, but he just refuses to leave. And finally, he sails off to the Isle of Wight and hangs out there and spends Christmas on the Isle of Wight. And it's really perplexing because you would normally think that someone like Ethelred would just go, okay, well, I already sent my family off to Normandy. I'm going to go straight there. But instead, he spends time with his fleet um, after the city has fallen. This is kind of, I don't know if it's stupid or brave or both. Um, but then he goes to the Isle of Wight, spends Christmas there. Um, and it's just a lovely. very slow withdrawal from England, even though the Chronicle already says Swain is full king at this point. Ethelred is not king anymore. No one acknowledges him. And yet his withdrawal is so slow and it's almost like he's daring someone to do something to him and nobody will. And it's just a nice thing to do, isn't it? It's basically his retirement. <laughs> he's gone for a river cruise down to the Isle of Wight, spend Christmas, catch up with the family in the front. He's got a second home in France. <laughs> it's all very casual. <laughs> um, so at this point, one would have thought that it's all over for Ethelred and he's got no hope of ever coming back. But, uh, it's that very, very rare thing in his uh, life and reign. He gets some good luck, and Sven dies. Yay! No, we liked Sven, didn't we? Well, I mean, it's good for Ethelred. Yeah. Um, but it's still quite impressive that, because in a way it seems, oh, well, Sven's died, so therefore Ethelred gets to come back. But obviously Sven had his son Canute in England at the time, who is acknowledged king by his supporters. So this you wrote about is really the greatest triumph of Ethelred's reign, perhaps the fact that he is able to come back. Yeah, it definitely is, because if Swain is full king, then Canute should perceive himself as the next logical option, and he does. Um, the Chronicle says that the fleet at Gainsborough, the Viking fleet, recognizes uh, Canute as king, right? But then the councillors in Wessex decide, well, let's call Ethelred back, and they do. Ethelred sends a favorable response back, and they actually work out a deal. This is really quite unique in you know 10th and 11th century Anglo-Saxon history, where they do invite Ethelred back rather than just washing their hands of the matter and saying, "Okay, Canute is king." They they call Ethelred back, and they don't um, they don't choose one of Ethelred's grown sons either. He had at least two that would have been suitable candidates. There's Ethelstan, the eldest. And there's Edmund, who later is known as Edmund Ironside. Um, and the the Chronicle says that Ethelred is recalled as long as he behaves better and rules more justly than he did the first time. Again, to me, this is hinting more toward Ethelred as a ruthless king. And his citizens are seeking protection against him if they let him back in. And um, it's notable that they don't choose one of his sons because it was possible to choose a less legitimate candidate um, if the, the Witten, the wise men, decided to do so. Um, but no, they choose Ethelred. They don't choose Canute. Um, his sons are never mentioned at this time. But Ethelred is required to be a more just ruler than before. And the agreement of 1014 that restores Ethelred to his throne is also notable for what it doesn't say. 
it doesn't criticize Ethelred's military abilities at all. It, credi- it criticizes his sense of justice. But eventually they work something out. Ethelred comes back, and the Chronicle says he's received with joy by him all. And right after this is when um, Ethelred has some of his greatest moments. But really, for the moment, it's amazing that he's even back and that they've actually worked out a deal and that they've chosen Ethelred and Ethelred has agreed to be better. This is something I'm not really sure I've seen before. And it's interesting, like you said, the fact that they don't criticize him for his his battliness, it does suggest that, like you said, it, the sense of his justice or lack of it, it is the fact that actually it's not that he couldn't fight, it's that they didn't want to fight for him. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, but eventually part of the agreement is that Ethelred forgives all that's been done against him. And, um, and uh, basically they, they both decide to start afresh and say, okay, we're going to declare every Danish king outlawed from England forever. We're starting over. I'll be your friend. You'll be my <laughs> friend. We're good. And they all gather behind Ethelred at this time and lead um, a campaign up to Lindsay where Canute is based and Ethelred actually drives Canute out of the country by force. That's fantastic, though, isn't it? And it's worth just sort of settling that, and again, because you know, effectively what you're saying there is Ethelred takes Canute on and wins. Yeah, and what do we give Canute? Uh, more than naught. Do we know what happened? Is there a battle? Is it a show of force? What, what happens at Lindsay? Do we know? And unfortunately, this is just the case with the Chronicle. It's so ambiguous. So it, it actually depends on what scholar you're reading. They all tend to kind of interpret it differently. Um, for example, E.A. Freeman, who wrote in the 19th century, seemed to believe that there was some kind of battle. And he says that he thinks Canute was defeated so decisively that basically he dropped off his hostages and went back to Denmark. But I've heard other, especially more modern historians, seem to think that Ethelred kind of came marching over the hills and Canute said, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for this, and, <laughs> and fled without, um, without engaging directly. And the Ethelred, we know for sure, did ravage Lindsay. Um, the Chronicle says he kills every living thing. Now, whether that, re- that refers only to the citizens who had agreed to support Canute and their lands, or whether that actually refers to maybe attacking some of Canute's soldiers, we just don't really know. It's very ambiguous, but... Killing every living thing is about as graphic as the Chronicle is going to get at this point. Hmm. Um, it's basically, I mean, it's the sort of thing normally associated with Vikings. Um, but either way, Ethelred actually drives Canute out. It is the first time in generations that an Anglo-Saxon king, not an elderman or not a tribute payment, has prompted uh, a Viking fleet to leave England by force. So this is really significant. And unfortunately, it gets kind of swept under the rug because... Of course, we know the end of the story, uh, but people forget that the Danish conquest and, and the battles and wars surrounding it, it was not a, a linear sort of event. It wasn't like things start out sort of okay in the 970s and then very gradually they get worse and then, oh, finally Ethelred's gone. Um, at one point, Ethelred actually comes back after being kicked off, leads a successful campaign against the Vikings, which is exactly what everybody wants him to do. And it's a monumental victory. Canute is gone. He doesn't come back for a year. And this is Ethelred the Unready handing Canute the Great his most humiliating defeat. This is Canute's most embarrassing moment. I just can't understand how we could possibly have given him zero. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the... Like you said, if it ends here, if Canute doesn't come back or if he dies in a storm, Ethelred, you know, rules for a few more years and everything's fine, then... 
it's this great heroic story of a recovery and you know all of this sort of thing but seemingly having finally had the wind turn in his favor in 1014 it all seems to pretty much immediately after Lindsay fall back into disaster again yeah it does and there is one more campaign that might have been part of ethelred's sort of uh, triumphant return. There is a saga that says that um, he employed a different Viking, Olaf Haraldson, to pull down London Bridge and retake London from Canute. Um, but whether you want to count that or not, because it is a much later saga, um, probably depends on the historian you read whether you want to accept that or not. But it's true. So 1014 is this great moment. 1015, it really does start to fall apart again. And again, this is where we see Ethelred again, sort of shooting himself in the foot because as part of his agreement to come back in the the very thing that allowed him to lead a successful campaign maybe a couple against canute in 1014 uh, that agreement said that he had to behave better he had to be more just and part of that agreement was that ethelred would forgive those who had betrayed him but he doesn't seem to do that in 1015 ethelred working through edric um, actually has a couple of a couple of nobles farther to the north uh, murdered. Their names are Sigfirth and Morkar. And um, this is really the beginning of the end for Ethelred because it prompts Edmund Ironside, who's very friendly with these two men, to marry one of their wives. You know, she's she's a, a widow now. And Edmund runs off with her, marries her, and basically says, I'm not going to cooperate with this anymore. And he's he's sort of acting as this independent ruler in kind of the five boroughs area. And so now England is divided against itself before Canute's even come back again. So it's, it does seem that, um, you know, actually he's not such a terrible king in terms of battliness, but he is a bad king in the sense of, you know, ruling justly, that charisma getting people on side. He's his own worst enemy. He actually has some decent ideas but he just you know just can't help himself yeah it really is unfortunate because there is a lot of good material to work with whether you're talking about you know raids in normandy or the isle of man or strathclyde or leading the campaign in lindsay it's all pretty good but he just undoes it all when he refuses to basically abide by what the chronicle says was his agreement to behave better and then at the worst possible time well two bad things happen at the worst possible time one is that Ethelred himself is sick. Um, the Chronicle is normally not not revealing about things like this, but with Ethelred, it does say that he fell ill in 1015, and he would have been about 48 or 49 at this time. Um, so Edmund's in rebellion, and then right in the middle of all this, Canute comes back. And it's also just the state of the kingdom. You think it was in such a good place in 1014, and obviously what we know from what Edmund Ironside does you know, when he is king for part of 1016, what an effective military commander he was. If Ethelred in his old age had been on good terms with his son and Edmund had been able to be, you know, effectively his sort of captain in the field, that could have been a really effective team in tackling Canute. It absolutely could have been. Um, and so, again, it's just very unfortunate that they're not on good terms with each other right now. And the factionalism in England, which has been a problem for the entire reign, but it really reaches reaches a climax here because we have Ethelred too sick to do anything. So who does he choose as you know the guy he's going to delegate authority to, especially military authority to? Amazingly, he picks Edric, the guy who persuaded him not to attack about five years before. 
And so Edric links up with Edmund Ironside, and they they sound like they're about to unite and fight a common enemy, but it all falls apart. The Chronicle says that Edric intends to betray Edmund, and, and it all goes south, and they both just separate without doing anything. Ethelred isn't doing much either because he's sick, and Canute is basically just running around the country at will. And a lot of this is, is because of disunity. We saw with Ethelred in 1014 how effective the late Anglo-Saxon military uh, organization could be. It could be effective. And we see it after Ethelred's death with Edmund. They're, they're both successful at times against Canute. And I almost wonder if this says a little bit about Canute in the beginning, too, that he suffers these pretty embarrassing episodes against Ethelred and against Edmund. But really, I think it shows that... Um, it shows that anything can happen and that this was not a lopsided affair. Um, each side has its moments. And so even though Canute ended up being a conqueror, um, and even though Edmund and Ethelred both were ultimately unsuccessful, it really wasn't impossible for the Anglo-Saxon state to resist militarily. It wasn't at all. Um, and really so much of it comes down to being unread, to being ill-advised, to not having that support mm. around you, whether that's you're being, whether that's, um, being unread yourself, whether you're not capable of putting good people in power, or whether it just so happens that the people who are already in power in these powerful noble families don't support you. I don't know if we'll ever know, but some of these things with Ethelred are absolutely self-inflicted. And this is really the key, I think, to understanding the Danish conquest, that England could not, for any prolonged period of time, work together during these last couple of years. Mm. That was the problem we had with the Scots. They kept uh, just infighting and just to try and get control meant that they could never actually do anything interesting over the overseas. Or it was always just, oh, are you in power? Good, right, I'll kill you. Oh, now <laughs> someone's killed me. Oh, you know, it's, oh, goodness. And it's perhaps this point at which, you know, the, the images that we have of all of these key characters really takes hold and sort of almost defines regardless of what happened before that. So we have Ethelred too ill to really do anything. Um, Edric Striona defects to Canute, presumably now thinking that if Ethelred's going to die, Edmund hates him, that he's probably better off switching sides. And there's a point where Edmund raises an army. They won't fight because they want the king there. And Ethelred isn't able... Well, he tries, but he isn't able to do it. Mm. Yeah, this is one of the most interesting campaigns of the whole reign, and it's not really even a campaign. They don't end up really doing much fighting, but Eth Ethelred tries to actually come out and meet with his son Edmund. I guess they're on better terms now because Edmund has been trying to raise levies for the last year, and without Ethelred's support, it just doesn't go well. People won't show up. They want the king to be there, and so he begs his father, please lead the Londoners out and meet with me. And basically show yourself, you know, that you're willing to do this. And Ethelred does it. He actually comes out, um, even though he'd just been sick the last time he'd been mentioned. Um, but it all goes wrong again when Ethelred comes out. The Chronicle says that he's told that he will be betrayed. And so Ethelred retreats back to London um, and dies. And so a lot of historians have thought that, well, maybe this has a lot more to do with illness and, you know, being out there on horseback or marching or whatever it would be um, while you're dying and the fact that it's Ethelred's only action between his illness 
and his death that's recorded is actually attempting to go back out and lead the army and meet with his son. I think it's it's sort of sad. It's almost poetic. And it sort of encapsulates the whole reign, doesn't it? That he's definitely willing to try. Hmm. But it just seems like everything is stacked against him. And it's kind of a kind of a beautiful moment in that he's willing to do it. Father and son are reconciling. The English people are going to be united. And it just doesn't work. Ethelred is told he's going to be betrayed. And he goes back into the city and dies. And that's that's where Ethelred's story ends for him personally. The Danish conquest, that story keeps going for a little while. But that's where Ethelred ends. Sad. It is sad. And it's also, I sort of feel like, definitely when we did this episode uh, originally, and I'm sure a lot of other people, when they've looked at this, it feels like, particularly when you see it from Edmund's perspective, it feels like just yet another example of how useless Ethelred is. You know, Edmund has been raising an army. He's trying to take on Canute. Ethelred's just been in bed and sick. Finally, he persuades Ethelred to come out and lead the army. And then Ethelred just, you know, hears some whispers, heads off home. And it just looks absolutely useless. But when you see it from this perspective, you think, well, poor old Ethelred. He's been trying for all his life, 50 odd years of desperately trying to do something about it basically dying and he still tries to have another go despite all of this it's, it's quite poignant really he does keep on trying despite everything yeah and i think that both edmund and ethelred showed that this was a much closer contest than we would like to think in hindsight we would like to think that canute the great is canute the great and ethelred the unready is ethelred the unready and we don't like to really think too hard about someone named Ethelred the Unready kicking Canute the Great out of England because it, <laughs> mm. it just makes everything so much more difficult. It's tantalizingly close to a very, very different history. And you wonder how different Ethelred's reputation would have been if Edmund Ironside had succeeded in 1016. And like you said, maybe we would just see it as a prelude to Edmund's victories and Ethelred starting that resistance and then Edmund just sort of mops up uh, the awkward business of this rebellious Viking, it would look very, very different without Canute the Great and his North Sea Empire following. Yeah, it, it absolutely would. And it's always made me wonder what really is the difference between an Alfred the Great and an Ethelred the Unready, because both of them were involved in these very, very close run contests. Um, so if Alfred, let's say a few things had gone wrong for him and he loses and a few things go right for Ethelred, I'm not sure the difference between them is that great. Mm. Now, obviously, Alfred is Alfred. Um, he's a remarkable man. And part of that is because Alfred has his own personal biographer as well. Yeah. So that helps him. Ethelred doesn't have that. But even though I don't think Ethelred was an Alfred the Great, um, I wonder if they're not a lot closer than we would otherwise think. Wait, why didn't he have his own biographer than this guy? Just too, um, too much upheaval going on at the time. Yeah, wouldn't really know. Um, in fact, with Alfred, it, it is more of an unusual thing. Uh, maybe that says something about the people that Alfred surrounded himself with, um, all those scholars. Um, uh -huh. And I don't know. It's it's hard for me to say I'm going to get out of my area of expertise really quickly if I try to guess too much. But uh, it is unusual that Ethel, or the, uh, Alfred has his own biographer. Um, mm -hmm. So it's much more normal that Ethelred doesn't have one. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it always reflects well. I can't think of a time when someone had a biographer that hasn't then uh, 
I mean, obviously they're written for them and and they're very positive. But then that lasts a thousand years, and <laughs> that's that's the history that we get. There's, however, revisionist, uh, you know, historians can l- look at it. That's still the um, that's still the uh, the the knowledge that the average person has. So that's the mistake. Everyone should write their own books. That, that was the problem with um, Emma of Normandy, and then who was her? Nemesis that I liked. Elf Giver of Northampton. Yeah, she needed a book. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the end of Ethelred the Unready. So I guess the question, well, maybe it'd be put this one to Ali. What are you thinking of his battliness having heard all of this? I'm convinced, honestly. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, not 10 because he didn't do the invasion and successful conquer of anywhere. He did get kicked out but it's the comeback story um he just survives doesn't he you're saying that he just is a survivor i can't see going lower than five i guess it is the problem with the fact that he's kicked out in 10 13 and you know maybe he would maybe he wouldn't but he was in a pretty rocky place when he actually dies yeah but you know who else so was i mean Henry the uh, now hear me out on this. Henry the second Rex Factor winner, mm. kids all in revolt, empire breaking up. Yeah, I guess he'd had a reign of huge success prior to it falling apart at the end. Mm. Whereas Ethelred, it sort of feels like he's perpetually trying to stop it spiraling into disaster. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, I definitely want five, and I'm prepared to be convinced further. If you're going lower than five, I'm going higher up. Well, what would you be thinking, Brandon? Would you be giving him a, a higher score for certainly higher than zero, I imagine? But oh man, what, this is great. My goal was just to get him on the scoreboard. <laughs> five is five is sounding really good. Um, but no, like I know what you guys are saying. It's hard to really get around the fact that he gets kicked off um, and could have again. But um, there are some good moments in there, and I think if I were to persuade you to go higher than five. What I might hang my hat on is that saga that I really, really briefly mentioned in 1014 that says that Ethelred actually hired Olaf Haraldson, a different Viking mercenary, to help him retake London and that it worked. And so Ethelred and Olaf are both very closely involved in planning this. Uh, It's a very dramatic episode, um, and it is later. But it does get a lot of details about England and the people in England and the scenario of the time. Uh, It gets a lot of that stuff right, which is a good sign, even though it's later. But the Chronicle, or not the Chronicle, the saga, talks about how Olaf came up with this amazing plan when they're trying to retake London to uh, tie these ropes around London Bridge and pull it down and they row backwards and they pull the bridge down and all the Danes on top of the bridge come toppling down and the men of Canute the Great uh, submit out of fear to Ethelred and that's how Ethelred regains London, according to this saga. So that would be the one thing I would throw in that we maybe didn't talk about as much that's really dramatic. It's a great moment. Uh, How seriously you want to take it um, probably up to you. Yeah, I mean, this is better than Harold Godwinson, right? I mean, he loses Ooh. the entire kingdom. Well, so did Athelred. <laughs> yeah, but and did nothing else. <laughs> well, okay, Stamford Bridge. Well, but right, in so fact, you know, at, at Stamford Bridge, he defeats once and for all the Vikings. Harold Hardrada, one of the mightiest of them all. 
marched in like two days all the way up the country, marches all the way down again. Such a small rain though, only a year, loses a big battle. But then is it better to lose a lot of battles over 30 years rather than six months? Yeah, but it's, that's, I suppose because of the survivor thing, you're su- I'm surprised that he's still there. Because I guess you've got to remember, actually, that all of these things that he's trying, but, you know, we've got twice that he's raised fleets, twice that they've failed and not actually managed to do anything. Campaigns into other countries, but actually Normandy wasn't Very good. hugely successful, even though he gets a good marriage alliance out of it. There's a lot of things that he's doing, but there's also a lot of things that's going wrong that he's doing. Hmm. But I definitely agree that it's so much more proactive and energetic and, uh, like you said, just a survival. He's a trier. He keeps on finding ways to stay in the game, adapt when one thing doesn't work. It He is a very different king to the one that I think we reviewed and yeah. that most people perceive. Yeah, definitely. I reckon if I were to be scoring him for battling again, I... I think I might still be below the five because of what? there are so many of the downers. But I'd be getting closer to it. I'd be thinking more around like a four. Well, that's better than a nine, isn't it? To go from a zero to go to a nine, like a halfway. How would you score him, Brandon? What, what number would you give if you were uh, to take control of the Rex Factor spreadsheet and put the number in? Oh, wow. So much power here. Um, <laughs> I would probably I would probably go four. I think four is pretty fair because there are those bad moments along the way too. But this is what happens when you have a lot of volume to work with. You have a lot of bad things and a lot of really good things yeah. as well. And I really love the triumphant return. Uh, but there is no way for me to go too much higher than probably a four or a five because, again, he's still somebody that was ultimately unsuccessful. If he had died in 1015 or 1014... It, ironically, it would have been easier to sky, to score him higher. I would say probably a four and a half sounds fair to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll stay with five. Though you sort of wonder, it's the kind of thing, if Ethelred the Unready had got control of the spreadsheet, it would have been very impressive that he managed to do it, but you imagine he'd have, you know, he'd have missed. He'd have hit the zero instead of the nine or something like that. <laughs> yeah. There's a dartboard. Yeah, the two is next to the 24, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that's been a, a very successful case for the defence of uh, Ethelred the Unready. Yeah, you've rehabilitated him, Brandon. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, you know, when I started this project, I, I knew there was a chance nobody would ever see it, especially working with so, such a kind of narrow topic against somebody who everybody's already made up their minds about already, including me. That's how I got <laughs> interested, because I realised I had gotten it so wrong the first time I looked through um, mm-hmm. But to hear that, that that totally makes this all worth it. And it's been so much fun, um, especially to get to, to come on Rex Factor, which, you know, I, I told Graham I've been listening to you guys for so long and to come on here and actually get to weigh in on a uh, on a Rex Factor score. I mean, wow, that's <laughs> that's pretty great. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, next time, I'm going to get someone on to prove to Graham uh, that... Um, Henry VIII was actually some sort of really nice guy, not at all a tyrant, actually a good king. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That could be a tall order. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, for setting the record straight on Ethelred and uh, his battliness. My pleasure. Thank you both so much.
Thank you, Brandon. Cheerio. And I think what will um, Ali stay on? Because I think we need mm -hmm. to do some of the bits at the the uh, the top and the end of the yeah. of the podcast. But yeah, thanks a lot, Brandon. It was really, uh, really uh, interesting. Really enjoyed reading the book. Actually, I should we should say again. Actually, on the podcast, um, you just remind us of the title of the book. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, England's unlikely commander: the military career of Ethelred the Unready. Is it available over here? Yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, there's an open source version that you can get on the publisher's website. So that's a publisher named Rounded Globe. So that one's right. that's an ebook. That's that's free. Um, anybody can get that. Oh, nice. um, and then there's a print version that's available um, around the world through Amazon. It's like thirteen dollars um, because the book itself is pretty short. It's like a hundred pages. Um, so you can read it in an afternoon if you're fast. <laughs> yeah. Come on again if you get another one. Choose someone else. Do another one. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I'm just, I'm just recovering from the first one. No, thank <laughs> you guys so much. Uh, have a good one, okay? Cheers. Great to talk to you. Bye. So that is uh, another look at Ethelred the Unready. Ethelred the Ready. He was a bit readier than we thought he was going to be. Well, I mean, according to the score, he was um, not ready or unready. He was just uh, Ethelred. <laughs> he was just there. Yeah. He was just doing what all the others did, really, and actually survived an awful lot longer than most of his family. Mm. So, you know. Well, let us know what you think about uh, what you've heard there about uh, Ethelred and whether you agree that he deserves a certain amount of rehabilitation, if you think he's still a bit rubbish, or if you think he's even better. Uh, than we decided at the end. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod, like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page, or email RexFactorPodcast at hotmail.com. Yeah. Uh, you can also, of course, leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever podcasting service you use, and subscribe. That is very, very helpful for us to uh, increase yeah. our listenership. Uh, if you'd like to donate to Rex Factor, you can do a one-off donation via PayPal, which is something Margaret Williams, Sarah Shulman, and Jay Knapp have all done. Oi, thanks, guys. If you want to get more bonus content from us, then you can join the Privy Council by donating a monthly basis. You get uh, some Privy Chamber podcasts that we do after our normal episodes, special episode access, mugs, depending on the level you donate at, and we've got a few new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Okay, ready. Diane Taylor, La Jo, Emma Lashley, Adriana Lippi, Love the Coat, Julie Matloff Kennedy, Art of Seduction, Royal Rakes, Rogues and Ruse, Dermy Quinn, Beth Ash, Nick Humphrey, oh. Emily Jane Charlotte, Sam Kay, and Keith Pifo. That is quite a haul. It, it is, and it's not an exhaustive list. Apologies to people who've been waiting to hear their name for a while, but obviously when we uh, have a, a break between uh, podcasts, we fall behind a bit, but we are catching up. We will be reading out your name. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, one and all. Um, I I, I, we fully appreciate it, and I also love the name Love the Coat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so that is our uh, sort of revisit of Ethelred and, uh, and his battliness. Next time, we will be doing the special episode, uh, as promised, on Sulla, Roman uh, general and statesman. Mm. And uh, after that, it will be Eleanor of Aquitaine. All right. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.